Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Fire Science Show, episode 93. This was kind of supposed to be episode 100, given the caliber of my guests today, but I thought it's uh, unfair towards you to keep this episode hidden for eight more weeks. So I'm I'm just going to publish it, and I hope you enjoy it as much as if it was published as an episode 100. And the guest is one of the biggest names in the fire science. It's Professor James Quintiri. You most likely connect him with uh, his work at the University of Maryland. But in this podcast episode, we mostly talk about earlier uh, things where he was involved with NBS, that's National Bureau of Standards, that eventually changed into NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, where he participated in a great, maybe even the greatest in history, experimental uh, fire science period in the world. And uh, that's exactly what I wanted to learn from him. What, what did it feel like? making research in 70s, 80s, what was it like touching the new fundamental things in fire that, that were undiscovered at that point? Think about it, the flashover phenomenon, the zones, uh, the uh, all the things related to, to, to modes of heat transfer, flame impingements, stuff like that. Amazing, amazing time to be a fire researcher. I also wanted to learn uh, what people were involved at the time, how the collaboration looked like, how did it develop, uh, why things like IFSS were formed. So, so this is the backbone of today's episode, kind of you as centered because James is, is giving his uh, personal experiences uh, being an American scientist, but I think a very important lesson for the whole of fire science, as between the lines you can read out why these period was such fruitful to the discoveries in fire science. Great news for you. There's one more episode with James coming, focused a little more on physics and the experiments themselves, like the technicalities of the experiments that were conducted. So look up forward for that one. And today, please enjoy as I discussed with Professor James Quintiri, the, the history and, and maybe the golden era of American fire movement. Welcome to the Fireside Show. My name is Wojciech Wiegrzyński and I will be your host. Before I let you in for the episode with uh, James Quintieri, I wanted to reflect on, on something. One of the aspects of the greatness of the times James is talking about was the availability of funding and people investing in fire science. And the second thing was a connection between the scientists and how they spread information. I hope to achieve the second thing through this podcast. And it's possible also because I have a supporter that uh, supports me in doing that. And that's the OFR consultants. So I am hugely thankful for OFR to going here along with me and, and supporting me in the development of this podcast. Our collaboration, even though it's just a few months in, has allowed me to do some really interesting stuff and, and so much more is going to happen. So yeah, thank you. Thank you, OFR. And if you had no chance to know them yet, uh, well, OFR is a multi-award winning independent consultancy dedicated to addressing fire safety challenges. It's the UK's leading fire risk consultancy and OFR's globally established team has developed reputation for preeminent fire engineering expertise with colleagues 
working across the planet to protect people, property, and environment. OFR is always looking to grow its team and is always keen to hear from industry professionals who would want to collaborate with them on the fire safety futures this year. If you're one of such a person, get in touch at OFRconsultants.com. And if you're an academic, look up for the stipends and scholarships that are being funded in major universities across UK. OFR, thanks for being a patron of this show and helping me create this content free for everyone. And now your well-deserved episode with James Quintieri. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Fire Science Show. I'm today with Professor James Quintieri. Hello, James. Nice to have you in the show. Very, very happy to be here. So fantastic to meet you and finally learn from you some stuff about uh, fire science. That's a long dream of mine to, to learn from you. Uh, Professor Quintieri, so I would like to start with how did you end up being a fire scientist? I saw your PhD about convective uh, flow, so I guess that was a nice interlude to fire science. But what, what built your interest in this uh, part of science? Uh, like many who go down paths after they graduate from high school or college, it's accidental. <laughs> you would not believe how many people say that in the podcast. No, it's true. It's true. We go down a path and if we went down another one, we never quite know what would happen. Phil Thomas told me the same thing. He got into fire by accident. So... Yes, I, I got hired by NBS, which later became NIST and IST, and uh, that was around 1971, and, and that's how I came to be involved in FIRE. That's around the time when a uh, significant amount of funds was dedicated to FIRE research at NBS. I think I've read a paper from Professor Hotel, who, who described the fight for how to fund the fire safety and, and right. you've entered it as as this became reality right yes it was emerging at that time there were several things i think that helped it uh, there was a great deal of interest in safety mm -hmm. in the 60s there was a man named ralph nader who focused a lot on uh, car safety mm -hmm. but fire safety got put into that because someone recognized that the U.S. had the uh, one of the highest per capita death rates in the world. Actually, it was a mistake. They were counting motor vehicle fires as uh, 10 times the amount. And so the government decided it was going to put some money into this. President Nixon appointed a committee. Hoddle and Emmons from Harvard were advocates for fire for a long time. And Emmons did not get on the committee, but Eckerd uh, from Minnesota got on the committee and they said that there should be money spent for fire research. Uh, that money went to the National Science Foundation. At the same time, the fire service passed some legislation and uh, that responsibility went to NBS or NIST now. Also, NIST had a fire program that went back to the early days of 1920 almost after a big fire in Baltimore. So for a long time, a man by the name of Ingberg at NBS focused on uh, the survival of buildings in fire. And in, in 1970, it was turning to the survival of people in fire or people in cars or things like that. And there was another act passed that said fabrics were becoming more flammable 
because they weren't made of cotton and wool now. They were made of polyester and nylon and things like that. And so issues were popping up. And at NBS, there were three programs. One, the old fire program, the fire service-related program, and the uh, fabric flammability issue. So there was a push to unite all those programs. And at the same time, there was, I think, $2 million being allocated to the National Science Foundation under a man by the name of Ralph Long, who was rounding up all academic. $2 million in the early 70s could fund 20 solid academic projects. So he brought some of the best people in combustion and heat transfer and fluid mechanics from academia into fire. Eventually, those programs merged in the early 70s in NIST. They brought in John Lyons to head the, that unified program, and the NSF program was brought in there too. So John Lyons really was a visionary. He wrote his own book on fire. He wanted to learn. He was a PhD combustion chemist from industry on retardants, and he really pushed to learn more. And, and that, those were the seeds of the early fire movements. And with that, someone like John Lyons said, we need to connect to the British and the Japanese. And that really was the start of a international kind of cadre to put their resources together to learn. So by the old program at NIST uh, or NBS, you meant the fire resistance stuff that was happening there, the structures in fires? Yes, under Ingberg. And at the time, Alex Robertson was headed that program. But NIST had politically uh, a lot of changes. So what interests me is that the focus seems to be on, on the structures or on the, the money, to be honest, the buildings, the factories. It was, I guess, the same when the sprinklers were invented even earlier, how Factory Mutual became a, a thing, how UL was uh, funded. Well, FM became a thing because the, the people at FM in Boston uh, were close to Howard Emmons, okay. and he was a consultant, and they wanted to bring more understanding of fire into their work and help them with their in insurance business. And so they've sponsored at the same, just be, before the 70s, in the late 60s, they sponsored a program at NBS under Howard Emmons. And John Rocket was brought in to, to manage that program. They brought in three or four scientists to work at NBS and then moved to FM Global and formed the basis of the FM Global Fire Program. John the Riss was one of those people. I find it very interesting how it shifted from, from buildings to, to human safety, as you said, and also involvement of, of, of new materials like polymers. What a, what a time to start a career. Well, the people side, I think, was fostered by the work, the attitude in the 60s that said, we should consider more effects of human welfare. Mm. And so the, the safety in cars was really the driver there. And when I got involved in fire in the early 70s, as far as the structure of buildings was concerned, that was passe. 
Okay. We didn't need to work on that anymore. And then came the World Trade Center. That's very interesting. When I, I interviewed uh, Professor Babrowskas in here, uh, I think he said that everyone was uh, expecting that performance-based engineering and uh, modeling buildings will soon overtake the fire resistance tests and uh, historical approach, uh, which I guess still didn't happen up to today. Well, if you work in an institute, I think that deals with test methods and regulation. Yes. Regulations are not always followed. Hmm. Even though there's test methods, you had Grenville in, in the UK. Yeah. If the simple test of non-combustibility was applied to the outside wall, that material never would have been on there. In the same sense, in the World Trade Center, a lot of people don't realize this, but the wrong insulation was put on the trusses in the beginning. Hmm. And they corrected it 30 years later, but they still didn't put enough on the building that fell down in 102 minutes had doubled the insulation mm. as the other building that fell in 56. You could do a simple structural engineering calculation of the insulation on steel, which is almost an algebraic answer result, mm. and predict that. I don't want to get into the <laughs> World Trade Center, but I'm just, if this thing goes and reaches other people, someone needs to look at the fuel load that was used by NIST using FDS and see if that's a rational fuel load. My conclusion is that it was too low. And because of that, FTS didn't have a long enough fire. And so the trusses were included to be adequately protected in both buildings. A total wrong conclusion for fire resistance. Well, uh, I'm sorry to bring in this political issue. I've actually been warned <laughs> about that. Uh, yeah, yes, it's a passion with me because I feel like they made a terrible mistake of a very simple thing. And uh, someone just needs to go back over their auditing of the materials because we did it. And they said paper doesn't burn in file cabinets. Anyway, Mordsmith, we, we will continue on. <laughs> yes, <laughs> thank you. So I, I'm, I'm really curious about those years of fire science. I always uh, somehow thought about the 70s, maybe the 80s as some sort of golden era of fire research. If I think about all these brilliant developments in plume theories, in, in compartment fires, in the early computer models, it, it has always fascinated me. And then when I was preparing to this interview, I was reading some of your reviews about state of fire research and safety. In 1986, I found an interesting sentence in there. You wrote that perhaps it's fair to say that practice of fire safety is an underdeveloped technology. Uh, it's just interesting to me to understand uh, what was the state of development back then. But more interestingly, you also... Uh, try to estimate the number of people worldwide doing fire science or fire safety. And the, okay. estimate, the estimate for US was approximately 150 people in UK, 90 in Japan, 160. And wow, that's, that's, that's one big faculty today. There is, uh, the fire science is so much bigger. I wonder how it felt like in, in 1970s or 80s. Do you think it's bigger? I think it's, it's much bigger today. I, I think there's, uh, can you name more than 150 people working fire? Yeah. I'm not talking engineers. Using no, I'm pretty sure I, I could name. In the U.S.? In the U.S., I don't know. In Europe, it's, it's, it's for sure much bigger. Yes, I think Europe has maintained an activity in fire. And I think there's linkages among universities and funding with universities under EU. That hasn't prevailed in the U.S. 
the center of gravity of people and, and uh, effort being spent is China. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. There, we, we know there are these uh, state key fire laboratories that has like 100 PhDs in fire. It's an amazing, amazing... Uh, yeah, there's, there's a dozen or more schools in China that have fire programs. So you would say that uh, from your perspective, it looks similar in scale, the, the fire science today, as it was 30, 40 years ago? I think in China, but I maybe in Europe, but I don't think there's the same integration. Mm. I think IAFSS has tried to maintain some of that, but it's not the same thing. I cannot remember in the last almost 20 years, a national meeting in the U.S. on fire, uh, other than when the people from Interflam would come over and had a meeting on the West Coast. That's unfortunate, actually. Have you recognized any meeting in the U.S. that you wanted to go to in the last 10 years? If I am honest with you, I I was once on uh, an FPA expo, and that was amazing. But Uh An FPA is not fire research. Yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. It's firemen. There, there's P conferences, but that's engineers, not SFPE scientists. SFPE is not fire research. SFPE kicked out IAFSS. They they were one of the founders of IAFSS and kicked us out as secretariat. Yeah. They were the secretariat. They said they didn't want to be involved anymore. That's how Carol Franks and InterScience got, got the job. Gratefully. Mm. Gratefully. Well, IFSS is still uh, going very well today. And, and the founders would really be happy. I'm more than delighted with uh, where it's going, and I hope to be more involved with it as well. And uh, I'm looking forward for the symposium in Tsukuba. We were actually bidding for IFSS 2026 in Warsaw. We, we didn't get it awarded, but maybe the next time it's in maybe Europe. Next. I, I, I really hope for that. But you are correct. I, there were um, meetings at NIST, but it was uh, smaller uh, conferences, yes. not, not on this magnitude. IAF was founded with the first meeting at NIST, hmm? and it had to bring in support from ISO, CIB, the Japanese, and NIST. When I went to the meeting in the UK that solidified all of this, I went with a message from NIST management that they would support us. When I came back, they said they would not. So I was on my own to arrange that meeting with Ray Friedman of FM Global. And if we lost any money, it would be on us. That's crazy. Yes, what, it is. What a commitment. You know, fire science is, when you start digging into it, it's, it's a bunch there's of... Poli- there's some politics there. Yeah, there's politics, but there's it's just a bunch of really interesting and persisting people who got there by accident and made life out of it. And uh, Yes, but you see, what happened in the U.S. is there was this, this had $5 million for funding or $4 million. There was $2 million or $1 million from NSF and academia. That was, that was a large amount of money. That mm-hmm. would be equivalent to maybe $70 million being spent today in the U.S. There's nothing close to that being spent. Mm-hmm. Nothing close. Not not on so, um, fire uh, science. Yeah. And so what happened is you had this mushroom of activity in the early 70s come together. And through the 70s, you had people in academia and new hires at NIST, like myself, starting to look at fire, a field that no one had ever looked at before, making mistakes, going down paths, learning from each other. and 
having really great discussions. I mean, there would be meetings three times a year. People would come to NIST. Industry would come to NIST because there was another funding from industry. Mm -hmm. The funding from industry was a penalty. The Federal Trade Commission in the U.S. said, industry, you plastic people, must spend a million dollars in research for the next three years. And the reason for that is you misspoke on your use and uh, safety related to fire tests. Mm. They were saying things like, this thing is non-propagating. This will not sustain fire. They were extrapolating from little tests into the big world. And the Federal Trade Commission called them on that and penalized them. And an industry that the people involved in that became very interested in trying to do the right thing. But once that was over, it died. I see. And when Ronald Reagan became president in 1980, he said anything connected to regulations should die. So the fire program at NIST was each year eliminated from funding under Reagan. So under eight years of his uh, presidency, each year the fire program was eliminated and restored by Congress, and it was restored in a bipartisan way mm. today that never could happen. It's- and so after the 80s, the program petrified. If it wasn't for FDS, you never would hear about NIST anymore. That's because the, the the rest of the work stopped. All of those things that you said, the nice experiments stopped. Hmm. When I look at the literature, uh, you see that uh, it has been a very, let's say, powerful uh, force in the in the universe of fire uh, science. Then stepped down a bit. Then, as you said, with with the emergence of FDS. However, I think the the CFAST is also an important development, a very important development for me. I think uh, the experiments on oil spills uh, and, and fires, this, this was also interesting. What, what I wanted to uh, uh, go further into is the research in this, let's say, this this era of possibilities that opened, uh, the funding being uh, supported in one way or another. In one of your reviews, you wrote that the state of fire science can be measured by ability to present consistent and generalized explanations for its its phenomena. I wondered, in 1970, so much was unknown about the fire. I wonder, how did you view the, even the concept of fire, fire science? How how did you decide, okay, we're going to uh, investigate radiant uh, ignition or we're going to investigate the new lining material for floors or are we going to go smoke plumes or are we going to go compartment fires? So many interesting things. And when you look into the literature, most of them start at this point. For most of them, it was a huge scarcity in knowledge. So everything must have been very, very new at this point. How could you make your mind like what to pursue? Like I said, when people got started, they made mistakes and they went down different paths. But what happened is as people got involved and they were supported and they were, they were supported sufficiently so that maybe they didn't have to produce something the first year because the funding was there, right? Mm -hmm. So it had a a foundation. Eventually, people found their path. And because uh, people were involved, there were issues of smoke detectors and detecting fire and saving people. There were issues of the rapidly growing fire from a fireman's point of view. Mm -hmm. 
maybe that's plastics. There were issues of what the test methods mean and why does this thing spread in this test but doesn't spread in that test. And so all of these things became question marks for the group assembled. And even Ralph Long, the, the head of the, the academic program, who he later came to NBS and I talked to him. I said, Ralph, how come you have four investigators working on flame spread? I said, shouldn't you just have like one or maybe two? He said, no, no, the more you have, the more you get a discussion, the more you eventually find the truth. Those are the wisest words a young person ever heard. And so that was the attitude. So you had, like on the academia side, you had four or five people looking at flame spread. You had people looking at uh, plumes and flows. Mm -hmm. uh, you had people starting to look in compartment fires and what does it mean by flashover and what is flashover. And at the same time, there were NIST experiments going on at NIST that were looking at the behavior of floor coverings and corridors mm -hmm. because there was a big fire and the use of floor coverings in, in a corridor trapped people in their rooms. And so there was a lot of motivation and, and FM and Harvard linked together. They had a joint program and they looked at compartment fires and they tried to unravel what's going on in the compartment fire. So all of these things brought focus to issues in fire, like what is entrainment? Why is the flame this tall? What happens when the flame hits the ceiling? What about a fire on a wall? What about a fire on a ceiling? What about a pool fire? Why, why are the results in the literature that say pool fires, when they're small, have a high burning rate, and then they go down, and then they go back up again when they become big fires? Uh, Hoddle and Emmons struggled with this in the 60s. So there were issues like that. And it was discovery also that radiation from a fire, either directly from the flame or indirectly from the hot surfaces, really pushed fire in compartments. So a lot of people started working on this. I mean, you, you had Ed Zukowski at Caltech uh, looking at flows. Uh, you had Chang Tien, who became chancellor of the whole California university system working on radiation. Uh, you had Emmons leading the show and eventually getting stepped into compartment fires and building his own model. I tried to keep some of that alive in the 80s, but you bring people together from France, Japan, Harvard, and who I hired at NIST. People don't talk to each other all the time. <laughs> so you can't get cross-fertilization. Probably Colleen Wade has looked at this more deeply than most people, and she probably knows. Yeah, she did mention uh, she, she had to write some code for master thesis, and I found it so interesting that you, you had to go such depth to even write your own codes. But yeah, I, I, I personally love zone models, and, and for me, that's uh, one of the beautiful, well, most well, look, beautiful things in you, you see, zone models are very important, and they were the essence of the research and those experiments you talk about because mm -hmm. people focused on phenomena and said, we need to understand this piece. But then FDS came along and said it could do everything. Mm -hmm. 
Now, the reason why FTS came along is when Howard Baum came to NIST in the early 70s, you talk about experiments, but Howard Brown brought in large eddy simulation that was being used in a meteorological world and said, look, in a room fire, you have mostly inviscid flow. You only have friction at the walls. So let's try to get the bulk of this done. And let's not worry too much about how we deal with viscous effects. So they put in this Magarinsky thing for, for the turbulent terms. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was the basis of it. And because of the development of the computer, it took baby steps. By the time Kevin McGratton came there, computers were really, really capable. And so Kevin decided he was going to open everything up and say, all right, we need a better piece for flame spread. We need a better piece for radiation. And he saw people that put that in there. What, what you didn't have is now the same cadre of people. So you had no one checking this experimentally, or you didn't have more than one person inputting it. It was not like a group of people focused on how do we put in viscous effects near the wall? How do we really do radiation with soot? It just got put in the code. And Kevin was altruistic in this regard, I think. And, and so if if FDS became what the zone model was for people in the 70s and 80s, where they looked at the zone models for how to get more detail about uh, mixing between the layers or flow through the opening or something like that, FTS, I think, would would have a a better, a more complete following in the experimental world as well as the computer world. I, I always considered zone model more as an empirical thing built through understanding the phenomena behind it. Not, but it's not it's not empirical, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, it's it's not empirical. The mechanics of doing multiple rooms with flow through doorway. The flow through doorway is handled very accurately in its own model. Mm-hmm. All right. The, the assumption that you have uniform temperature in one layer and uniform in the lower layer is reasonable, but you may say that's empirical. It's approximation. Mm-hmm. It's a reasonable approximation. But when you go into a zone model and now say, I'm going to embed a ceiling jet in there. Mm-hmm. You're embedding good physics in there. When you embed a plume in there with its its entrainment, you're embedding very good experimental results from people like Ed Zukowski and others mm-hmm. who accurately measured this stuff and and then developed, like you say, empirical relationships. But they weren't just power laws. They were based on physics. And an experiment, uh, yeah. Full scale, yeah, ex- full scale it, experiment. It, it, that's what's th- th- that's where I see the beauty. Yes, but it's but it's based on physics of the phenomena. It's not. I, I'm just going to plot x versus y, and if it goes to the 1.3 power, mm-hmm. I'll be happy. No, you you better justify why it's 1.3. Fantastic. Um, you've um, mentioned about all this um, fascinating. Like whatever you touched, it seems it 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 was new and interesting. I would like to talk a little bit more about flashover and all the phenomena in, in, in Firegord, but flashover is probably the most interesting one. I wanted to understand like 
Flashover is something that probably firefighters observe for however long firefighting exists. You can see that sometimes fire is small and sometimes it has uh, this huge uh, size that encompasses the whole room. And that it was probably observed in, in reality that the, the transition may be very dynamic. I wondered how did the early research into flashover phenomena look like and like what were you even able to measure? How were you investigating that? Because for, for me, it's one of the most uh, beautiful aspects of fire science, the, the instabilities right. that lead to flashover and uh, how it develops. Yes, that was intriguing. And in the early days, we would say, oh, look, the temperature was 200 degrees. And in the next 10 seconds, it went up to 800 degrees. So we would say, ah, the flashover must have occurred at, I I don't know, 500 degrees Mm. Celsius or something like that. And so people would pick a number and they would say, if you get to that temperature, you're, you're going to go to flashover. And that was really, really loose. Now it was useful because if you got in that range, you were going to be close to this flashover phenomena. But if you look at what flashover is, and and I tried to do this in my later years, but you really need a zone model to do it uh, properly. In any case, it's a feedback phenomena. And this was brought up by Phil Thomas. And we had a joint paper with Phil, uh, Bernie McCaffrey and myself and Matthew Bullen, who was working with Phil. And it's basically feedback. And Mark Valadze at the UK had some work done, one of his students, I forget the student's name. So it's it's a instability, it's a feedback phenomenon. I think a semi from Japan looked at it this way too. And it it could be dissected more because those those phenomena was basically looking at a, a fire not spreading, a static fire, and the feedback back to that fire. And so you would get feedback to the fire, the burning rate would go up, the burning rate would cause an increase in temperature, you would get more radiation feedback, and this would bring you to another point. And it's, it's the same as the Seminoff ignition model in combustion. It's the same kind of equations that you could write down. Where in the, in the Seminoff case, it's the uh, kinetics of the chemical reaction and that driving it. Whereas in the fire case, it's the radiation causing the feedback. So it should still be looked more because if you have flame spread involved and you get preheating up to a high enough temperature, you can get close to the ignition temperature of the material. And then you'll have very rapid spread. Mm. So if you look at fires, and I don't know if you have my second edition of Principles of Fire Behavior, but there's this collection of pictures there that I show from tests done at the ATF laboratory that vividly show what happens when you have a flashover. You'll get the feedback, but at the same time, you'll get the very rapid spread. And when you get that very rapid spread, the smoke layer drops almost to the floor. And and now you have a lot of mixing of the air coming in with the smoke. And you're bringing back to the fire 
diluted air. So the fire is not getting that air anymore. So if the fire started in the back of the room, that air has trouble getting to that fire. And what happens now is that fire virtually goes out and the fire starts moving toward the vent. If you use FDS in such calculations, FDS will show that the fire will start moving toward the vent. Mm. And what this does is it then leaves patterns on the walls in the back of the room that are soot-collected patterns that fire investigators see all the time and try to make sense out of, but haven't fully digested what it means. So flashover is rolled up into the feedback phenomena, the flame spread enhancement phenomena, the jumping to a fully developed fire where it have zero oxygen now in the smoke layer and leaving behind these uh, soot patterns. They call them uh, clean burns. What you've uh, mentioned, I think it uh, was observed in a large-scale experiment at Cardington and at one of them, and it was recently uh, revisited. I think it was uh, researcher Shudai who was uh, doing that. Yes. Well, uh, there was a man at, in Australia, I forget his name, who showed these so-called traveling fires a long time ago. But they occur, if you look at the work, one, one of my PhD students, and if you look at the paper with Tensei Mitsukami, Ustakol, and myself, you, you will see that we got all of these so-called fires like that. And Phil Thomas saw them in the 60s. If you start a fire in the back of the room and it tries to, and it gets out of control and jumps into this flashover state and jumps to the front of the room, the flame will move toward the vent. Mm. And because the room will get so hot, it will continue to generate fuel. And I have videos of this where the flame just attaches itself to the vent Mm. and there's no fire in the room anymore. People have, have not, The investigators need to look at this. The researchers need to look at this because this is not fully... Engineers need to look at this before... But but James, this is so relevant to today's fire problems where we uh, see the growth of, of mass timber in buildings where if you bring the d- discussion about thermal the compartment fire dynamics in mass timber building you're often being told that it doesn't affect the internal because the fuel produced will will burn outside it's not as simple and it's such a beautiful uh, physics yes, that's happening you know what temperatures you have inside at that point those are temperatures that will damage the structure and continue of course. to degrade the, st- the the wood yes and i had a newspaper reporter who said He interviewed a fire scientist and was told that because the wood chars, it's protecting itself. Yes. We, we were battling against that on LinkedIn and everywhere whenever we can, it's, but it's so it, hard to You beat. know how wood burns in, in a fire like that? It burns cyclically. We found this out by accident. I had Margaret Harkelberg doing a thick piece of wood mm-hmm. in a radiant panel, and it, it ignited, it flamed, mm-hmm. it burned out. It went to glowing char and she left the room, but forgot to shut off the radiant panel, right? (laughs) It continued to glow. The char burned off. When she came back in her data sheet, she had recorded an identical second experiment where the wood burned again with the 
back to flaming and charring in the same exact way. Yeah, we saw that uh, we, we were doing lots of experiments with Mike's viewpoint on CLT uh, cross-laminated timber compartments, and we've seen the second flashover. So definitely interesting. I've asked you about the flashover because it's such a, a fundamental thing, fire science. You know, even the the whole concept of fire resistance is post-flashover fire concept. You know, we don't care what's happening. Yes, yes, post-flashover. Look, people said. That problem solved. That is not solved. And in addition, if you're dealing with concrete, you better understand the cooling phase mm. as well. Indeed. We are also like looking into cooling phase in, 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 in mass timber now as, yeah. as, as well. It's very interesting uh, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I wish there was more people and more support for fire. It, it's really incredible. You know, Japan was one of the stalwarts in supporting fire, but they're on the wane as well. Uh, I, I don't know what to say. China, to me, is closed now because of COVID. I don't hear from those people anymore, but they, they got the most support. Professor Fan, who is now at Tsinghua, was the founder of uh, fire research. Mm. He worked with Spalding in the UK. And he was one of the founders or instigators from China in the IAFSS. Some people forget that. And so I would like to see, you know, from a fire research point of view, more integration around the world mm. with fire. You know, how many meetings do you have in the UK, uh, in, in the uh, EU for... In terms of, of fire science... That's a difficult question because, you know, COVID changed the dynamic a lot. It certainly did. Yeah, I. Yes. there are a lot of thematical, you know, not a, a giant symposia, but we have a very good tunneling conferences held by yeah. held by people at RISE. And there's a second one in, in Austria and Graz. And there's amazing conferences, Fires and Vehicles. That's also cyclical, also by RISE. There are right. Nordic right. Yes. Nordic Fire Safety Days, which are very scientific. There's yeah, lo yeah, yeah, a yeah. lot happening. I, actually, I, I think... Yeah, I see that from time to time, but people in the US, I think, are not plugged into it. Maybe we, need to, re we need to replug you <laughs> in that case. Uh, my days are gone. Uh, I've done my last research in batteries and microgravity, and I, saw I, I wanted to come back to flashover, but... COVID, I, didn't, I never got COVID, but I think it pushed me into isolation. I was all set to go to a combustion institute meeting, Mediterranean conference in Egypt. Mm. And then I came down with uh, some mysterious illness again, and it went away, but I had already canceled my trip. And so I, I missed the beautiful meeting on next to the pyramids. And, I, I heard it was pretty, pretty good. <laughs> Yeah, J James. Uh, as we are on on this international bringing people together, I really wonder uh, how did this type of collaboration and 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 this type of involvement, interaction with other groups look like in 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 the seventies? Like you, you've mentioned multiple times, Philip Thomas, and uh, I guess with David Rasbash, that was a huge group in the UK back then. There was a very strong groups in Japan, uh, starting with Professor Kawagoe and, and then uh, Tanaka. A, a lot of fantastic researchers. How, how did the, this landscape look back then and how were you able to interact with them? 
Okay. So one thing was there was ISO and CIB meetings. Okay. I'd see there's probably ISO meetings, but I don't know about CIB anymore. Council International. Yeah. Bill, Bill Thomas was the convener of both. Mm-hmm. And he kept that alive and functioning internationally. And so that became a place where people could meet. And Japan would send scientists to those meetings. UK would tend to send scientists to those meetings. Other countries might send regulators to those meetings. I think it's probably not scientists anymore. I don't know. I've lost touch. I think ISOTC 92 is still convening. I'm I'm not a part of it, so it's hard, hard for me to tell how these meetings look. Yes, but I think they disbanded their engineering group that was supposed to do performance-based codes and establish the most accurate equations. And there, I think a Japanese scientist was working that, and I think they pulled the plug on that. So that was an activity. At the same time, there was this academic activity with 20 grants in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so there would always be an annual meeting on that, and people were invited internationally from that. So people like Phil Thomas, Japanese, other people in Europe, they were invited. People from industry were invited to see what was going on. So that was that activity. This became the overseer of the grants and people like me and others who were in a a science role would collaborate with the investigators. And so there was this keen interaction between this and the academic people uh, in a collaborative way. I got to know wonderful people like Howard Emmons, John Doris, Ed Zukowski, and many, many, uh, Jerry Faith, many, many more. All the people at FM, Ron Alpert, that did pioneering work, Gunnar Heskestad. Chang Yao and on the the, uh, sprinklers. So there was a lot of interaction. At the same time, it was recognized that Japan was very deep in fire. And John Lyons, who took over the integrated fire program at NBS, said we should have interaction with Japan. It became the UJNR. I forget what it stands for, but essentially it was U.S.-Japan meeting every two years where it would alternate between Japan and the U.S. And we would send a whole bunch of people over to Japan and they would do likewise. And it would be like about 20 people going in each direction. And we would have a week of meeting talking about what we had done over that year and integrating it with others that couldn't be there. So based upon that, when I took over a group in NIST in around 1980, I, my first thing was to invite Tanaka. Second, it was to invite a, a semi. Later on, in the spirit of compartment fires, I invited uh, Michel Curta and Xavier Baudard from France. They were involved in this magic code, which was very good. And Emmons retired at that time, so I brought Henry Mittler, who was responsible for cobbling together the Harvard Code. And under John Lyons, when he was in charge of the program, we we had 121, 120 people at NIST involved in fire. Wow. Wow. When Reagan started to squeeze us, I think now if you count the number of people in fire at NIST, 
I wonder if it's more than 30. I have no idea how many there is, but it's definitely not close to 100. As, as, you, were so, sa- as you were saying that I found some um, report from a meeting in 1998, which happened at Sukuba, and seems the next one was supposed to be held in San Antonio in 2000. It was, and it was the last meeting of the UJNR. And the reason for that was the NIST management said we didn't need it anymore. Mm-hmm. And the Japanese have always been very disappointed. If you talk to Sam Manzello, I don't know if you know him. Mm-hmm. He was based in Japan for a while, but he, his employer was NIST. And they tried to revive UJNR because the scientists in Japan missed it. Mm-hmm. But by then, most of the academics and fire scientists from NIST were non-existent anymore. That's unfortunate that, uh, well, science, yeah. fire science is a story of accident, people coming into profession by accident. And politics, how, how could NITS, you know, John Lyons was head of the fire program, but then John Lyons became head of all NIST. So he was the director of NIST. He was the only director not reappointed after the new president took office. And the reason for that is the name change, NBS to NIST. The new administration put tons of money into NBS and changed this name from National Bureau of Standards to National Institute for Standards and Technology. They added technology to it, which they added a lot of money where NIST would give money to industry to try to promote, in the spirit of commerce, better industry in the U.S., and I think John Lyons fought that, and as a result, he was kicked out. Ah, politics. Uh, yes, uh, politics. I rarely see good things coming but out of politics. Richard Nixon was responsible for the fire program in the U.S. And now, to finalize this this part about international collaboration, can you also tell me about IFSS and how it came to life in in middle of 80s? Because of the last five years in the 70s, and the interactions internationally and discussions with FM Global and Phil Thomas, we begin to realize that an international activity was really, really needed. Mm. And the highest activity for fire was in the Combustion Institute. But Combustion Institute people downplayed fire. So uh, Ray Friedman, who had been president of the Combustion Institute at one point, said, that's not the place for us. Okay. And so in the early 80s, we started talking about what can we do? Could we have our own section in the Combustion Institute? They said no. Irv Glassman in the Combustion Institute said he wanted us in there. Irv was another contributor. The people at Princeton were contributors. Combustion Institute, very big back then. Now it's it's huge. It was the biggest thing around. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it had a a lot of advanced fields and fire was looked upon as primitive. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, but a lot of but a lot of good papers got in there. It, it's funny as you say that because I always have the quote of Hotel in that among uh, uh, along life sciences it may be the most complex phenomena of all. Yes, it, it is. You use FDS, right? Uh, I'm actually ANSYS, but I'm very familiar with FDS, yes. All right. So it deals with the turbulent flame. Yes, yes, of course. I was at a meeting in the Canary Islands of the Combustion Institute. Okay. The Mediterranean section. And they have a lady who does 
high-powered computations, direct numerical simulation. And then they had an experimental, this man, and they were both looking at turbulent flames. And the numerical person, I think she could only get about five seconds. And the other guy, actually his lab was being shut down because they thought combustion was too crude then. His laboratory is in one of these fission and fusion laboratories. Mm -hmm. So combustion is now passe, fusion is... Okay. (laughs) So anyway, they both concluded that a turbulent flame is made up of a premixed flame, reignition and ignition, uh, and some diffusion. And so it really portrayed the flame in terms of real physics and chemistry, not at all like it's being modeled in these turbulent models. Yes. But, but I emphasize, so there is, and how maybe fire is primitive and, yeah, yeah. and, and combustion is different. And, and now I heard that fire almost took over the last combustion institute meeting and it was mostly from China. I saw on I, the Mediterranean that the one that you said you missed, there was a fire section all, I think for all days, it was amazing. A lot of fire research for sure. Yes, there was good. I'm, I wanted to see the pyramids. But so there was this recognition by people like Ray Friedman, Phil Thomas, myself, Pat Pagney from Berkeley, that we should have some international meeting like the Combustion Institute at a high standard so we would get more freedom. And so we had discussions through the 80s. And Thomas was very sensitive to politics and culture. And he broached the issue with Kawagoe and Akita in Japan. Uh, they blessed it. And then we had a big meeting. It was either ISO or CIB meeting at Wood, And Kawagoe was there. Thomas was there. Ray Friedman was there. Uh, I was there. And we organized the first meeting. And that's when this said to me, You're, you'll be fully supported. But when I came back home, they... So we changed their minds. I see. So that's how IFSS got started. It was a, a normal response to people wanting to maintain interaction internationally at a high academic level, wanted to get more than what the Combustion Institute was giving us, because that was the really only place SFPE had no sense of research at that time and probably still doesn't. They're really users then, but they well, the, really... There is research foundation nowadays, but it's not that SFP is doing uh, the research. It's just grant... Uh, no, that's an F- NFPA. But the research foundation really became a vehicle for industry to get things done through NFPA that they wanted done. Okay. All right. I'm not saying it's bad. But one time, and Kathleen Allman told me this, and she presented it at a meeting. They hired us, they they looked, they took a look at some work, and a scientist gave them a new path, and the committee wouldn't take it. But I'm just saying, the NFPA Foundation is a good thing. They do good work, but it doesn't have the same connection with the rest of the world, where there would be integration and feedback and discussion. It's it's kind of a closed thing. Mm. Just like your activities on tunnel fires is a closed mm. thing. It's not like people around the world saying, oh, there's this big conference on tunnel fires. Yes. We should go. 
Yes, this fragment, like in, in I think in Europe, fragmentation is yes. We have the IFSS uh, still uh, going there. Hopefully, we will rejuvenate the European IFS symposium. There's Asia Oceania symposium that's very big. Yeah, I mean, Hirano started at the Asian thing, and he started that because he felt that Asia would get the short stick. Mm. And in some ways, he's he was right. But the Asian Oceanic thing was really, really very good. And, you know, people like Hirano were not pioneers. Flamespread, pool fires. You probably see the work of Koseki that was Hirano's student. Definitive work on large pool fires. You don't see that anymore. That's why I, I when I see uh, the research from 70s, from 80s, you know, today having being a part of a fire laboratory, I see your research in, in 70s when you've burned like 50 rooms with Steckler. And that's, I find it amazing. I, I would love to repeat that. It, okay, I, it might sound like uh, odd, but it doesn't well, seem hard, but we're not doing uh, that today. We don't have funding. We don't have well, ability. But the measurements were challenging because to measure those flows and to use pitot tubes, which really were bidirectional probes, and to understand how, how that bidirectional probe worked, and to have Bernie McCaffrey in the background who calibrated them and understood that and wrote a paper with Gunnar Heskestad, who yeah. actually invented the bidirectional probe. To have all of that thing going on in the background gave immense support to that work. And by the way, when I had work done on FTS to reproduce that stuff, it does not do a perfect job. And the only way you can do it is to have cells far outside the room. Mm. So there's a paper on that in, in the literature. And my student who was from China would have preferred to see FTS come out better. So he and another student recast those results and did it with a grid far outside the room and improved it to some, some extent. But that activity is very thin. Back in the time when Steckler was doing this, it would have been embraced and discussed. Now it's lost in the literature. Okay, I'm probably talking too much. Are you enjoying it at least? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's nice to go to the past, but it's frustrating not to see what excited you excited me. Really? And I miss it. <laughs> and it, 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 it was a different time. Why can't it be again? What a question. <laughs> how, how for the end of, of the episode? Let's make it. Let's, let, let's well, it's not just yeah. to, it's not just up to us. No, it's not up to us. But you know what I I can tell you there is a lot of brilliant passionate people in this industry. Maybe a little scattered around the world, maybe in in different places, maybe some I see that. And I see I see Europe is stronger now. And uh hope maybe we will rekindle the passion also. Okay, um so uh, yes. Uh, th thank you very much for for yeah. uh, for this interview. It was it okay. was a pleasure. I hope you don't have, have to excerpt some of this stuff. <laughs> I will. Uh, don't worry. Okay, Wojciech. And this is for today. The episode has ended quite abruptly, but there's a reason for it. We kind of changed the topic and went for another hour with James on the physics of experiments carried at NIST. You know, Steckler's room experiments, plume experiments of Bernie McCaffrey, all the flashover experiments that led to the creation of MQH correlation. Oh, such great stuff. 
how they've measured it. And I must tell you, these people were advanced in what they were doing. It's just simply fascinating. And I hope we will someday reach their level of technical understanding and their level of collaboration. And that second thing is something that really comes up from this. As you can see, uh, with a lot of nostalgia, Jim is talking about all the meetings between American and Japanese scientists. He said that they were having a biannual meeting for a week. Can you imagine scientists just going for a week somewhere to discuss science? We don't have time for that anymore. But, but that, that, that's, that's kind of stupid. Without this cross-pollination, without this exchange of, of knowledge, exchange of ideas, there, there, there cannot be any growth. There cannot be any significant growth. Or maybe, maybe there can, but it's, it's just so much less probable. I wish uh, we had more of these discussions uh, coming up. That's a, one of the reasons I, I really enjoy this podcast, because I get to talk with uh, scientists from across the world, all institutions. Everyone is welcome in here. And I, I hope at least with this one-way knowledge transfer, I, I can affect some of this cross-pollination of ideas across the world. Maybe, maybe that's uh, one of the ways to do this in, in the modern world where anyone, everyone is out of time and everyone is, is struggling. Anyway, I really hope we could slow down, talk a little more, and maybe get some more meaningful fire science. And yeah, if we get our research funded, that would also help. Well, <laughs> that's, another, that's another thing. It's kind of funny that you learned that the golden era of uh, fire science was triggered by an error in statistics to which the government responded, creating funding that, that led to breakthroughs in our, in our field. I hope we don't have to resort to having wrong statistics to fund fire science. I just, I just really hope someone really did invest a lot in that. I, I guess the world is changing and fire is being recognized as one of the emerging issues. So one day the funding will be here and I hope on that day we talk more, we exchange our knowledge a little bit more, we work together and together we build a little more fire safe world. And that's it for today. As you've heard, there's another episode with James Quintiri coming up next week. So I guess you will be looking up for that one. I surely am. Thank you for being here with me today. See you here next Wednesday. Bye. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.